friends. Welcome back. Get ready for some awesome. That, there it is. You know what that means. Jonathan Stormont cranked up the generator, got the electricity running in Arkansas. We're doing a podcast straight through the landline in the kitchen of his house. Um, by kitchen, I mean the outhouse. Um, Jonathan, thank you for being here. It's been tough for you, I know. I'll just start, jump right in. The most recent episode with Scott McKnight, who used to love you, was hard for you because <laughs> a lot of people were saying, oh my goodness, McKnight loves Luke more than Jonathan now. And I just want to say, just for all my listeners, while that's probably true, I just want you to know, Jonathan, I'm sorry for what you're going through. Wow. Thank you for that very backhanded compliment towards yourself. Um, I will say that uh, in response to your podcast, he did a lot of um, – okay, that's a good question. Does he know how how your tender male ego was hurt? The last time when he told you, I don't like that question, Luke. Okay, first, it is, first of all, he didn't say he didn't like the question. He said six years ago on the podcast, he said question. it was a silly question. Uh, some people, there's, it's a cultural thing. Some people say, hey, that's a silly question. Like, oh my goodness, you're so smart and witty. I like you. Um, you can hear it the way you want. But uh, nevertheless, you know, I just think good prevailed over evil this time. And he, he saw the goodness in my questions. And yeah, it was just a good one. You did ask good questions, but I was like, "Gah, Scott, that's kind of over the top, man." Like, I, I'm wondering if his um, his publisher or agent is like, "Listen, we have this guy. Oh, you know him? Great. Listen, I just want to coach you on this podcast. He is a real diva, and he needs." He needs you to kind of coddle him the whole time. Here, listen to this Richard Rohr episode and see this is how he does it. Because I, I did feel like, I mean, I'm, Scott is a good friend. I love that guy. He's amazing. And um, I don't think you doing one good podcast replaces like eight years of writing for him. So I'm not concerned in our relationship status. But I can tell you that normally he's, he's one of his gifts is bluntness. Like he'll, and it, it seemed like he was like, okay, this guy's very delicate male ego can't handle no, that. The, that's like Jack Nicholson. You can't handle you know, the truth. What it was is that uh, the greatest of these is love. That perfect love overcomes mm. many things, and that's what happened. I think he just loved so much the interview that he just. He was just overwhelmed. And I think that's why many people found that to be a really meaningful podcast. And here's what, let's just get it out on the surface. Has anybody ever told you that you remind, you talk a lot like president number 45? Like many people, everybody's saying, has anybody ever told you that your, <laughs> your podcast? Okay. When- <laughs> okay. Real talk. I, I have been, um, prohibited from doing announcements at our church because I worship team (laughs) (laughs) because last summer they said all right Luke you're doing announcements it's July we're doing a family event and there was a logo for it that was like you know summer family thing and had ice cream on it and I was just I just started making stuff up and I was like that's a family thing there's ice cream who doesn't love ice cream there's gonna be and and they had to go get ice cream because it wasn't part of the plan I, I I just made it up and I I realize when I do announcements, I I go Trump. Like I am just it, there's no logic. It's just I just want to talk and make it fun. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah, that's fair. That is really good to know. I don't think it's just when you do announcements. <laughs> I think <laughs> and everybody knows mm-hmm. it. A lot of people are saying a lot of people are saying. A lot of people are saying. So yeah, that uh, okay, yeah. fair fair enough. Um, but let's not let's not make this just about me because it's not about me. Um, you're my guest. I want to talk okay. about you. And oh, what good. was difficult, I think, for the McKnight podcast in which Love won, uh, just like Rob told us it would, <laughs> is that it came on the heels of a pretty tough conversation. And some of my listeners knew that Suzanne Stabile has been on the podcast the last couple times. And while Suzanne and I were at Pepperdine for the Harbor event, we had a, a lunch with you there. And mm-hmm. I left the table. Uh, I left. I came back after going to the restroom. Uh, 
And I get back and I step right into what appears to be a hornet's nest. As you're trying to turn Suzanne Stabile, my beloved, against me, my beloved Enneagram master teacher and my best friend, you try to turn her against me. Do you remember this, Jonathan? Uh, yes. I, how can I forget? Okay. So for those listening, um, I believe one of the cardinal rules of the Enneagram, which uh, apparently the rules can change like you're playing chess with smoke. Um, what is, what, one of the cardinal what rules is, is who's smoke? Is that like a uh, cartoon that, thing? It, no, it's the Jerry Seinfeld thing about uh, marriage is like you're playing chess with the pieces made of smoke. See, um, I don't understand that mis- sort of misogynistic humor, and so I didn't get it, but carry on. Carry on. It could be because you're anti-Semitic. Like, I get that. Is that If that's what we're going to do, then that, let's do it. <laughs> okay, carry on. Carry on. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, the one of the cardinal rules of the Enneagram mm-hmm. is that you're not supposed to type other people. I agree. True I or agree. false? Yes, 100%. Okay, so Luke, for the last couple of years, has been consistently typing me. He steps away from the table, and we're all having lunch together. You said it a very weird way. I was having lunch with Suzanne, and Jonathan was there, like, as if we're not all having lunch together. We're all having lunch. Tomato, tomato. Tomato, tomato. So Luke steps away because his bladder is weak, and he... While he's gone, uh, I point out to Suzanne that she may have sidled up with someone who is charming. You know, the same way that sometimes people join teams before they realize, hey, this is... Anyway, I just wanted to warn her as a friend, because Suzanne is one of the reasons I'm in Arkansas. Like, you may remember that previous Malibu conversation. Yeah, yeah, But... We're, we're I wonder Peter about. <laughs> Highland said, "All right, here's what we're gonna do. Ten thousand books we're gonna buy if you get Jonathan to leave." And anyway, never. It doesn't matter the details. The point is, you and her have a relationship, a history. Mm-hmm. And so I told her that you have been. Uh, pretty aggressive about typing me over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And um, then you come back and sit down mm-hmm. and you can take it from there. Okay. First of all, uh, if if you remember the program from Harbor, when the Suzanne and I had the two sessions, they yeah. described the sessions as Enneagram master teachers, Suzanne Stabile and Luke Norsworthy uh, discuss blah, blah, blah. Um, I think part of what you need to understand by that sentence is that both of us are Enneagram master teachers. And so because of that, I think most people shouldn't type others. What was your training? What was your training? It's uh, part of it is that it's like the family business, um, like mental health, psychology, uh, social science, mm-hmm. like that. It, first of all, that's a family business because my dad's a psychologist. And second of all, because of the friendship that I have with Suzanne, like it's kind of like an, kind of through osmosis. It's inherited righteousness, um, very similar to oh. justification in scriptures. So because okay, yeah, anyway, so there's that. My my training uh, in those modules, dare I say, um, enabled me <laughs> dare you. enabled me to make a statement that was trying to emancipate you from the slavery you had experienced to being falsely typed. Um, uh, by yourself, and so that's what I've been doing for years and trying to it emancipate. It wasn't me. by myself. It wasn't by myself. But which, by the way, that would be ideal, right? So, it, do you want me to tell this whole story? Because it's not that. Yeah. Okay. Well, like, the end of the story is this: is that you? I, I felt like I was being called into the principal's office. You tried to get Suzanne against me. And she asked the question, and at first you thought like you were getting me in trouble, but the conclusion of this is, in many ways, um, 
the setting free of Jonathan because she starts to ask you about your anxiety and your relationship to power and your relationship to leadership and your counterphobic six ways. And all of a sudden, the end of the conversation is this judo move where you tried to push against me, but she took that energy and used it right back against you. And the conclusion that I think I wanted all my listeners to know is that you have finally opened up to your new identity as a counterphobic six, not a three. Okay, so nobody nobody thinks that. Like the I I um, ran up by my wife, told her the whole thing, told a few people, but I feel I feel I'm at a disadvantage here because the moment you're talking about, I don't feel is I'm able to share. Um, not because it's anything nefarious or. Um, Jonathan's pregnant, guys. But, I'll just break it. Jonathan is pregnant. <laughs> And we're really excited for the family. Only 23. Number six. So uh, the, the point, what I'm trying to say is that there's, uh, that you, I, I'm, there's a lot that you've gone that you, through. And so it's difficult. We're going to get into the McKnight conversation in a second. But it was just difficult that you had those two things on, you, on your shoulders weighing you down from hearing it clearly. And now I'm flying as a counterphobic six, right? You know, how you want to fly is, is your call. That's your call. So the Enneagram to me was a useful tool back in the day. <laughs> I, I don't think about it that much anymore. Um, the, um, I, I don't know. I heard Ian Cron say once that the, the Enneagram is wrong, but it's helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's right. Um, I feel the same so way about your sermons. I was... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, so that for those listening, this was a super cool moment. We were getting to hang out with um, Suzanne and her family, and it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And Luke and I are always like this mm-hmm. when we're together. Yeah. So I'm always trying to help Jonathan. Uh, we did. He's refusing the work of the Lord in his life, and that's. I'll I'll leave that to the jurors to decide if that's what is happening on here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah Suzanne, so we tried to get in a tug of war between Suzanne and I won. You, no, no, I don't think that's what happened. <laughs> I don't think that's what happened. Unless I can tell the whole story. I won. I won. I, I feel like that was the whole so, story. I don't feel like there's more to it. So, uh, oh, there's more no, to it. There's more I, to it. I don't think so. Uh, what I do think though is that we wanted to name some of these things that you brought to the table as we're going to talk about the McKnight podcast and i feel like we named them and so the i I read once the monsters that are named are monsters that you can befriend and so we've (laughs) named them you read that where did you read that where i read that um i don't know (laughs) it's hard to say it really is hard to say um here's the thing i bet you can find it in a clearance bargain You can find it in a Mardell's clearance bin. <laughs> That's so hurtful. We're talking about <laughs> befriending your monsters, but our good friend Luke. <laughs> Check it out. Yeah, I. They're basically giving them away. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. There, there's a um, a Twitter feed like that got real popular during the the COVID days. Uh, Oh, hold on, Jonathan, I know you're in Arkansas. COVID was a pandemic that the rest of the country mm. did social distancing. And so this Twitter feed did... Uh, Is that the one that was made up? <laughs> so, uh, that made up one? Okay, uh, we're going to keep going here. Um, and so there's a Twitter feed called... Uh, uh, what was it called? It's like rate my... It's like rate the background. I forget the Twitter handle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rate, it was something like that. Rate my so background. They, someone got a picture of... The screenshot from me in, oh, I can't say his name, Mako Fujimoro. And he was at a studio, and yeah. like this amazing background. It's like this amazing mural that he did. And like the top half is me. And so room, whatever, they took that and they just cut me out of it. And I was like, guys, what the, what's the deal? And you cut me out of the picture. And uh, so like a couple weeks later, like mine was up there. And they gave my backdrop an 8 out of 10. And they said, uh, good, blah, blah, blah. But watch having multiples of the same book. <laughs> and it was my own book. And I was like, thank you. Thank you for rubbing that in. And I've got copies of my book in my bookshelf that I haven't sold. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So tender moment right oh, there. Oh, that's great. Tender moment. Tender. Um, a long, it took a long while to get there, but it was good. It was good. <laughs> okay. Uh, McKnight conversation. Uh, yes. 
McKnight has a new translation of the Bible. Uh, the Second Testament. Has anyone ever approached you to get you to translate the Bible? Uh, you know, I. It's hard to work. I, I'll be honest. I have a lot of emails I haven't gotten to, and I'm trying to catch up and get them all. And so, could there be a few of those in there? Maybe. Yes. Do I know for sure? No. But I, who's to say if they have or not? I, I think that's a sign that you've arrived mm-hmm. when somebody's coming to you to be like, hey, I want you to translate this thing that thousands of other people have translated. What really that needs to happen is you do yeah, it. Want- and it was a fascinating conversation the premise initially seemed counterintuitive to what i would have leaned towards which is let's make it awkward to read so that it feels more like the greek right and he won me over on the idea of okay just because you can read this quickly and it makes sense you doesn't mean you're actually getting it well so i appreciated what he was doing and it definitely won me over uh to that and one of the things i especially found helpful was his comments about everything is interpretation and the idea that we don't have interpretation in our translations is a game that i think we like to play but it's not real did did you see i I referenced a a a tweet in that where someone was trying to say Mm -hmm. we don't need phds telling us how to read the bible it's plain and straightforward and you go that's a nice idea, but it's like saying you go to a steakhouse and, well, you know what? I'm not going to put any seasoning. I'm just going to eat the steak as it came out. And you're like, what do you think they did in the back? Do you think they just cut it right off a cow and, and put it on your plate? Like they've put so much stuff on it. It's already seasoned just because you're not adding your A1 or what you probably do is add ketchup to it. doesn't mean that you're not eating a seasoned steak. It just means that you don't know all the seasoning that's already in there. Yeah, I think if somebody says that, and by the way, I, I can defend that statement because I actually I have a populist impulse in me too. Um, the but I think if somebody says that, hand them a Greek New Testament yeah. because it's it, the truth is the Bible doesn't come wrapped and mapped. Yeah. It it comes to us by people who have spent their lives trying to help it not. Not change it, but help it be understandable. I mean, I think of Brian and Libby, who you know, they're in um, a country in a country that's in civil war in Africa right now, and their lives are constantly in danger. And they're with the Pioneer Bible Translators, mm-hmm. and all they're trying to do is get to know this group of people that they know and love, and have learned how to speak the language, so they can help them understand what these words mean in their own language. And I think the the populist impulse is I don't think it needs to be ignored because I think elitism is is a problem. When um, you're saying populist, can you but, can you interpret like what you mean by that that phrase? Sure. Well I mean like so I, I don't think many people need to have it explained because Donald Trump like Donald Trump was a pushback on the elites by far. And anytime there is a huge gap between leaders and the people they are claiming to lead, you're going to get a populist revolt. I mean, that's human history. Mm -hmm. Um, So what often happens, (coughs) excuse me, might be that made up virus coming to Arkansas. (laughs) Just kidding about by the way, this is just me and Luke. I, I've been vaccinated. I believe I believe science, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I mean, sure, it was the vaccinations that he uses for his cows, but it's nevertheless, it was a vaccination. <laughs> it was that ivermectin, whatever. That was the stuff. We, just rub it under We just had some pits. puppies, so we had some sitting around. I just shot it in my leg. It'll be all right. It's, yeah. it's dewormer. You just have dewormer um, in you. <laughs> My doctor slash car mechanic, <laughs> he helped me a lot. <laughs> so, um, populist impulse. Populism is, yeah. Well, you get it. I mean, it's happening in Turkey right now. Um, it is in anytime there's a gap between the elites and the people they claim to lead or serve or work with or for. Um, yeah. And so, if I was if I was talking to the person who wrote that tweet, I would say. I think you have a point. My problem is, and then I would say what you, I would say it better than that whole dumb steak metaphor, but you know, 
you're at the point taken. The thing I would say to, uh, in defense of populism, is often elites um, get. I mean, it's the whole ivory tower argument, right? Mm-hmm. Like it is. These people don't know what real life is like, and they also kind of serve them condescendingly. Yeah, yeah. Like, and and there's an anti-intellectualism that goes both ways um, in the church that I am. I would like to reject, and that is this: if you can't appreciate what a Jeff Childers or you know somebody who. Uh, biblical scholar you know richard beck yeah yeah biblical scott mcknight if you can't appreciate what they know um then i think that i think that that's a problem but one of the reasons i love jeff childers and scott scott is really good at this too is they see they're they're blue collar working class families they see the wisdom and the intelligence of the plumber and the car mechanic and the stay-at-home mom as well. Um, they they also see the, the you know wisdom, they yeah. they realize that right because one of the problems of, of elites is often you think because you're intelligent in one discipline you're intelligent in all disciplines and that you're you know so yeah. I, that that would be my response to that. One of uh, a very well-respected person who I who I, again, look up to a whole lot, uh, was in a situation where he's like, you know, I don't need these PhDs telling me how to read the Bible. I've been reading it for 50 years. I, like, I've, I've read the Bible. I don't need them telling me how to do this. And I think that speaks to an inability for um, the experience of the academy and studying and learning a language that's, you know, functionally a dead language that most people don't know and that never studied and understand that there is complexity to the text. Um, there's an inability to respect that there is a lived wisdom that those who don't have your academic experience bring to the table. And I think any times you right. diminish everyone's voice from the table, then you what you're going to do is you're not going to let anyone appreciate what the other one is doing. I, I think that's part of you know, the Academy's problem. Now, on the flip side, there has to be a humility f- from the other direction too. I mean, if either side lacks the humility to listen to someone else and go, okay, hey, we're in the Academy, we're studying this, this is what you know, the best scholarship says about how to read this text or what this is saying or, or any subject for that matter, um, the community at large is worse from that because we're disrespecting part of the gifts that the body brings. But the other side to go, if, if you're not you know, a hand or a, an ear or a brain or whatever you are, to think sure. that you don't matter or you don't have significance, I think that impedes the ability for everyone to flourish as they were, you know, created and designed and trained to, to serve the body. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the post... So, colonialism, we're, we're big... We don't like colonialism anymore. The same impulse is, is exactly... It's there, right? Like, we're going to come in and we're going to tell you how to do things or you, you, your society's not organized and we're England or, you know, whatever. We're, we're going to tell India how to, mm-hmm. you know. And um, the same impulse is there. And it, it's really pride. Yeah. Like, I think, it, I think the, the thing that we're trying to do is, like, approach life curiously. Yeah. Like, try to figure out, you know, I love reading the Bible with people who don't know the Bible. It's one of my favorite things to do. Because, and, and I'm not, my first Wait, is that impulse Is that why you're always asking me to read like, the Bible with you? <laughs> That's weird. Yes. Are you burning yourself? I was going to that one. Yeah. I was going to take that well, one before you took it. That's a, that's a breath of fresh air. Um, so, I, I love to see what they see. Because... I think it's um, insightful often, and I think anyway. Yeah. I, I don't want to belabor the point here, yeah. but that's I, there's a curiosity that I think is rooted in, and maybe humility, not pride, yeah. that is really helpful. I think you get rid of humility, and you get rid of a good conversation. Also, if you get rid of 
just there's certain things that are true and not true. And when you lose the ability to say, hey, um, just because you want that to be the right way to read that or you want that to be what's right doesn't mean it is right. I mean, there's certain things that are just categorically false when we make claims about what the Bible says. And ultimately, that's what scholarship does. It, it brings the testimony of those who've dedicated themselves to studying something to the table. And the church needs to be able to use scholarship for what it can be and how it can serve the church. But to say, you know, you know, the way we got the Bible is, you know, the Holy Spirit wrote this through someone's divine light and it's on their pen and that's exactly what we have today is go, well, that's, that's not how we got the Bible. And yeah. so e- either side is, right. is missing something. And anyway, humility, I think it's a big part of getting there. And I think I'll, one of the reasons that we have so many problems with the number of young people grow up in church, they go off to university, and all of a sudden they have these grown-up conversations about the Bible for the very first time with people who aren't people of faith, and they hear these grown-up statements mm-hmm. about what the Bible is and isn't, and they go, wait a minute, that actually sounds very true, because it is true, but my sort of like Sunday school flannel graph answers for what the Bible is didn't give me any vocabulary, didn't give me any... Uh, guide to have these sort of more grown-up conversations about the Bible, and it leaves them uh, devoid of anything to bring to the table other than going, this is new information, it clearly is not wrong, it's true, and therefore everything I know is false, and it deconstructs the whole thing because you haven't created space to have these grown-up conversations. Is this your way of saying that you're going to do the sermon series I pitched to you with me on the, in the fall? I don't know what you're talking about. Because you just made the, this, yeah. Uh, are we gonna Are we gonna publicly announce this no, here, that we, for the first time since Christian made the best atheist, we're coming are back together. The band's coming going, back together. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm there. Yeah. I'm not like pulling the trigger yet on it, but I'm I'm getting close to the idea of doing a series about what the Bible is. And here, one of the things I recently. I, I, yeah, and what it is, I was I was doing a, a study, a personal study for mine. One of the things that a lot of people don't know is, I think the oldest manuscript Chicken, of the Bible. Chicken Soup for the Soul is like, oh, I thought you were going to say your personal study. Chicken Soup for the Soul, what? No, how dare you? Is I don't know if you know this, Jonathan, but up in... I, the oldest manuscript in, in the Bible is in Michigan. Yeah. It's P46. Yeah. <laughs> I told no, him this two nights ago, y'all. I saw this coming. What a punk. I, <laughs> you are such a nerd, man. <laughs> How dare you? Okay. Listen, y'all. I carry this guy's water so much. I have worked on this series for, I don't know, six weeks. You just, you know, tinkered with it. And I started pitching it to him, and he's going to take the idea. <laughs> the crazy thing about, Vampire friend. <laughs> the craziest thing about that uh, manuscript is that Romans 16 is actually in the place of where Romans 15 is. And a lot of people would just go, that is crazy, but the oldest mm-hmm. manuscript we have for the book of Romans is drastically out of order from the one that we hold and assume to be drastically tell me tell me about this if you're going to talk out your butt i want to hear you go on the, what what First exactly all, is the verse what in the name of ace venture <laughs> are you saying about talking out of someone's rear end uh, when you have a chapter of a book and there's only it's 16 excuse me so, uh, tell me tell no. me what is out of place what i just told you i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> No, you said part of part. You said something about Romans fifteen and Romans sixteen. Could you say I that just again? Said for it, the you say it again. Now you're looking at the footnotes no, in your no, Bible. Let the, let the listener know <laughs> that he now has a Bible open. Jonathan, I always Dust have. Just flew I off. always have a Bible open. I always do. That's kind of my thing. Uh, what I was trying to say is that there's some manuscripts that have a different order than what we do. That's my point. Hmm. That's right, and that's in the earliest uh, Greek manuscript that is in existence that we have called P46. It's in the University of Michigan, and I and potentially Luke, um, unless he, he's blown it with this podcast, we'll, we'll evaluate, are going to go get to interact with P46 and take video and uh, photographs of it for our churches because we want to bolster like their faith in the Bible, but what the Bible actually is. And in that... In that manuscript, the end of Romans 16, uh, the end of the, the kind of doxology mm-hmm. um, is in Romans 15. And that is a good way of just saying, like, when you say words about the Bible, uh, 
make sure that the words you say about the Bible, maybe, you know, this is kind of Church of Christ, but Church of Christy, but maybe use the words the Bible says. Because um, we use words that we got from some modern enlightenment, scientific, you know, science versus faith split that really have very little to do with the Christian tradition and history. Yep. So, you know, like Augustine, the way people have dealt with the contradictions that are in the Bible in the past have been radically different than the way, you know, the friends of ours that have walked away from faith, almost all of them, it starts with the Bible. And I, we just had our senior Sunday um, and I was talking to seniors afterwards. They're going to, you know, U of A and, uh, or Harding or ACU. And um, I know they're one lecture away, depending on whether the college professor is a person of faith or not um, from knowing these things that we're not trying to keep secret. We just don't talk about. And yeah. And and it, I mean, well, I was just going to say like the inability to talk about it is what makes it so destructive for many people because the inability to talk about certain things about scripture that are different than maybe what we want it to be or the complexity that we're not ready to carry, uh, the ability to have that conversation in Christian community versus in a community that doesn't have any interest in, in supporting the Christian tradition creates a vastly different experience. And I think that's why it's so important uh, to listen to the words of the book of Jude that says, be merciful to those who doubt. And I think one of the most merciful ways to do that is actually to talk about the issues. And I know we're going to get into medicine here and antibiotics, which is something you probably don't have a whole lot of familiarity with in Arkansas. But one of the most destructive things about an antibiotic is if you don't take the whole thing, but you just take a little bit of it and all of a sudden your body didn't receive the full dose. It just had a little bit and all of a sudden it becomes uh, unable to use the medicine to that's actually right. help you. And so sometimes that that's a much better metaphor. Uh, so I use that all, but that's a much better metaphor than your steak one. Luke, that's a silly question. How dare you? Um, it, it, um, I say often that American Christianity is an inoculation. It's not the whole yeah. thing. It's not the real thing. And I, you know, I'm searching for the real thing myself. Like, I don't, who is it that Maya Angelou who said if somebody ever told him she was a Christian, they were a Christian, already? she would say, already? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm, so I'm not a paragon of what I think the real Christianity is, but I know it's there. I've bumped into yeah. it. And it's not like this, you know, the parody that we see, um, you know, in Christian nationalism or the kind of progressive Christianity that whatever the next new thing is, is definitely good. And ancient people were stupid and um, we now know better. Like, it, it's not that. It's the real stuff that, mm. you know, produces saints, real saints that show the world what God yeah, is so like. You did uh, your first season on Modifieds. Uh, and you've got a second one coming out. And for those who don't know, like the project is basically talking with many of these people that we're describing. And like you put flesh and skin upon these very real stories of people who grew up with faith for the most part and then stepped away. And some of them, right. uh, like these are people that like were a part of your church, people that you know, that, some, that I know some of them. And I think as you're talking about the conversations typically start with the Bible. It's, uh, and I'm not trying to minimize or reduce someone else's experience, uh, but what I do think is a lot of times many of the people that I've talked to who've had struggles with the Bible are people who never had a conducive environment to having healthy conversations about the Bible. How consistent is that with your experience throughout your like season one of the project? You know, uh, I'm trying to think through I would say probably half of them were in ministry, like, and I mean, like high level MDiv training. Um, so they had they had those conversations, but beforehand, they're, I mean, they had the same training you and I do, mm-hmm. um, and they, it just it didn't feel as stable as the kind of. Um, 
I don't know, dictation theory of the Bible. Because you're basically, I think Orthodox Christianity is not telling you to be like Muslims or Mormons, mm-hmm. people of the book, right? Dictation, you know, God whispered this in people's ears. That's not what Christians have historically believed. Um, Orthodox Christianity would talk about the Bible as almost a theological history mm-hmm. book. Like, it's a lot more than that. There's a lot more genres than just history. But these are real people that really existed for the most part. You know, sometimes it might be parables or myths, but I, I don't use the word myth lightly either. I don't, I'm not, I'm not in the German Protestant uh, liberal. Yeah. I, I'm not, I believe the Bible. Give me, but, give me one sentence on what you do mean. If it's, it's, that's not your definition of myth. What do you mean by it? Just so. Oh man, gosh, I can't do a sentence on myth. There's a book on myth that I, that I, if I can remember, but it's just because something is a myth doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. Can I jump um, in here? Like, but the, yeah, the parables that Jesus, you're going to answer well, the question. Like, you're if you're not going to give it, I want to give something for the, my listeners who are going, Oh wow. Myth means it doesn't matter. It's not true or something like, um, Jesus shows sure. parables. The, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son are not historically true, but there is truth in them. And who are we to think that the God who in the flesh as Jesus told parables or myths wouldn't also use that before Jesus was incarnated, right? I mean, it's the idea that Mm -hmm. these are stories that tell the truth. Now, uh, let me be very definitive here. Like, the person of Jesus historically is a true story. That's not a a myth. Sure. But the idea that myths can be a part of the way that the community of faith tells stories that are true about God and reality, like, I, I think that's what a fuller understanding of myth means. Yeah, like, that's right. Um, so, like, a lot of times people, some scholars think Jonah was a myth, um, and some people are going to be mad at me for saying that, and some people are going to be like, some scholars? Like, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I don't have a strong opinion on that. I think the story of Jonah is deeply profound, and you kind of miss the point that, like, one of the reasons I believe in the Bible is because Jonah's in the Bible. Because there's not a more self-critical uh, group of people uh, talking about... I mean, yeah. they're talking about their sin of not loving their enemy and racism. And they put it in their most holy text and said, pass that on to the next generation. And then people with the scientific worldview that we have come along and they're like, oh, this must not be inspired because... Like, holy yeah. crap! Do you realize there's no other community of faith like that? This Jewish people that put things like the prophets and Jonah, which is a prophet. Yeah, but but the point one. is that, like the story of, like you're saying, the story of Jonah, the lowest form of that story is the historicity of it. Like, did it historically? Was there literally right. a man who fled from Nineveh? Didn't want to go there. Like, that's the lowest form of the story. The highest form of the story is a community that includes a story critical of themselves that tells of the amazing love of God that includes even the most despicable people that we all hate. Like, that is the, the highest and truest form of the story. And that doesn't demean the truth of the story. It just has a fuller one. That's right. And so I would consider myself post-liberal in the sense that um, I found, and I think you would probably be in this too, I just found those conversations or those ideas not very fruitful. Mm -hmm. Like, it wasn't, you know, I don't have a problem with, if God created the world, if God raised Jesus from the Mm -hmm. dead, then I don't have a problem if Jonah swallowed the well. Like, I'm... In a place, I'm not trying to come at this Why is that? What? cynicism. You're trying right? to say what's more important. But because if God raised Jesus from the dead, anything is possible, mm-hmm. right? And I don't, you know, I'm not trying to m- diminish God's work in human history. And I think a lot of times people that are skeptical of people who talk about the Bible in terms like that are trying to say, um, they're trying to, they're trying to, Watch out for people who are trying to make God a deist or non-existent. Mm-hmm. But you're, I, so. I think, and, and I'll speak for myself. I feel like you're doing the same thing. 
the point about Jonah that you brought up, it's not to try to diminish the point of Jonah because it doesn't fit modern expectations. The point is to listen and to submit yourself to the literary way that Jonah is communicating a point. And so it's not that you're going, I'm modern, therefore you're stupid because you're old. But what you're saying is I'm going to humble myself to listen to what Jonah is actually trying to say. I'm not going to make it say what I want it to say in the same way that just a second ago you you said that we should stop being drugged into very recent modern discussions about what the Bible is and isn't and like scientific debates of, you know, science versus faith and that sort of stuff and make the Bible be humiliated into being in that conversation instead of going, wait a minute, let's let the Bible speak first and foremost for what it's actually trying to say. And if it gets into a modern discussion about whatever, then great. But first and foremost, we listen to what the Bible is saying because it is the inspired word of God that's useful for tech teaching, correcting, rebuking. That's right. I don't know about you, Luke, but when I was in grad school, and this has no reflection on grad school, it does have something to do with, I, I think, well, me. But when I was in grad school learning biblical criticism and Harding, um, I stopped reading my Bible. Uh, there was a, I, I mean, I would read it some, but, uh, and I felt guilty about not reading it because I knew I was supposed to. But there was a sense in which it was like, okay, well, now that it's not that, then, you know, and it it took a little while to get that off. And I think a lot of that is there is a sense in the scientific method, which is what biblical criticism is. And I'm grateful for biblical criticism. Like if you've listened Mm -hmm. and you've had that training then I'm glad I had that training because it helps prepare me for conversations with people. But I'm post that. I am. I am. I want to read the Bible the way Jesus mm-hmm. did, which you know he says in Matthew 19. Haven't you read when God said? So he assumes that what these stories that he's reading in the Bible are somehow the words of mm-hmm. God, and that. You know, there there is a, a submissive spirit that leads to a fruitful reading. And I think there is a posture that can happen on the left and the right. On the right, they try to make the Bible a rule book mm-hmm. to fit everything. And on the left, they try to, you know, ex- explain often stuff away and just cobble together the stuff that is useful because, you sure. know, all of Western civilization values mostly come from mm-hmm. that. And... Um. Anyway, okay. I, I think there's another way of. Okay, I got you know, t- two follow up questions. First of all, this uh, short answer. Uh, give me a thumbnail for why you stopped reading your Bible. I, and I say that as someone who had a similar experience, where for me it's like you know I, I read my Bible every day. I get to grad school. I'm told um, nothing that says stop reading your Bible, but for some reason it didn't feel like I had to do that every day, and I just didn't do it as much. Why would you say you stopped reading? Yeah, and to be clear, it wasn't our grad. We went to the same grad school, uh, ACU. It was great, and it was really helpful. Like I have a deep faith because of ACU. But I think there's just something about when, and I think it's the same thing that my friends that have walked away from faith felt. There's something about when the Bible isn't what you thought it yeah. was. Is yeah, that, no, that's exactly right. Is yeah, that, that's fair? That's my experience too. I think you said that very well. Okay, so the more important question though is. How did you get back to the Bible? Like, how did you get back there? Because you just described yourself post-liberal. Some would say you went through construction, deconstruction, and then reconstruction. You came back, you know, on the other side, record calls this like the second naivete, like that you get back to reading and going, this is life-giving, even though it wasn't what I thought it was or I wanted it to be, you know, growing up. I clearly had something that changed the way I understood it, but I got back to it. How did you get back to it? Man, I would just say Peter's question, to whom else would we go? It's kind of like you start looking out at the world. You know, I, I, I'm i not huge on labels, but post-liberal, post-progressive. You start looking out in the world and you start seeing all these ideas that sound really good. and But ideas have consequences and ideas take time to mature. Mm-hmm. And you start seeing the consequences of those ideas and the inconsistencies in them. And you start to realize things like, okay, if you value diversity, as I do, if you value history, as I do, if you value cultural diversity, as I do, the Bible, and this sounds like, I don't know, 
propaganda or whatever. Maybe it is. But the Bible is written multivocal across many generations and across many different cultures, spanning three different continents, um, you know, something like 1,800 to 2,200 years of time and compilation. You know, you've got, it's always written from the side of the underdog. It's never written from the side of the kind of the dominant ruling class. And they're equally critiquing, or maybe not even equally, maybe it's more self-critiquing. And and the way, once you start to learn what each book is trying to do, like Genesis, for example, Genesis is beautiful. It's I'm reading it with our 13-year-old son right now in the mornings. And today we had, uh, well, so I, I'm trying to let him see that Genesis is descriptive, not prescriptive. I want him to see that just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean this is God saying, have yeah. at it, you know, um, and how non-judgy it is and in some level. And then on the other, how utterly devastating it is. Because when people live for themselves selfishly over and over again, it doesn't go well for them or for people in their lives. And yet, we just keep doing that. And, um, you know, like Genesis 1, the, the kind of, archetype of marriage is a man and a woman, one man, one woman for life in a marriage, right? That's Genesis 1. And yet for the rest of Genesis, nobody does Mm -hmm. it. And Genesis doesn't say anything about it. And it's the very best of us that don't do it. I mean, you got Abraham and and Jacob and, uh, you know, the, the patriarchs have multiple wives and concubines, and it always is a dumpster fire. And that's kind of how that ancient document works. And you can disagree with that, but that's how, you know, at least at least deal with it on its own terms. And for me now, I feel like I'm stepping in to history um, that's under God's watchful gaze. Mm-hmm. And I, man, it, it re your life. And if you, if you, read it well with a submissive spirit and you can just use discovery Bible study. You know, what does it say about God? What does it say about humans? How do I obey? If you just read it like that, it'll change your life. And you don't need any PhD person telling you how to do that. Yeah. Look at you. You went back. You see that call back? You see that call back? Both characters. That's really good. On the one hand, you're changing like generations of stereotypes and the cultural expectations for a 13 year old to not be able to read in Arkansas. And so you're pushing back against that while also concurrently pushing back against the elitism of the Academy. And in that way you're pushing both sides because you find your energy pushing against being a counterphobic six. Can I talk about bonafide for a couple of seconds? Uh, I, I, so, 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 um, but let's we first acknowledge, are, like, that was a perfect inclusio to the podcast, like, because I tied it all the way back in. Yeah, I know. Stinks. I could tell what you were doing, and, yeah. So, uh, this season in Bonafide, season we have, Bonafides. we're recording, and I think it's the last one, because it is, it's, I, I enjoy it, but it is exhausting. Oh, it's exhausting um, to do 12 podcast episodes? <laughs> so you're 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 dealing with people who you're mostly like worldview is totally in agreement. Um, I'm working with people that I care about and they care about me, but they're they're like not um, they're doing this as an act of love, a labor of love. I'm doing it as a labor what of you, love. And you, uh, okay, I mean, I would just say you know I invite you on the. Okay. Go ahead. Go. 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 Go ahead. Go ahead. Real talk. So it's conversations that really do carry a lot of weight, and there's a delicacy because you're talking yeah. about things that you disagree on at a core level with someone that you care about, also at a core level. And so there is some level of dissonance that you're having to navigate. If I want to be loving to this person, but also respect, we have different opinions, and we're not going to just pretend like it's water under the bridge. These are important things that you disagree upon, and how do you navigate that? Right. Yeah, and I, the good feedback I've gotten has been it 
it helps people not feel so lonely that are in that situation. And I would love for those people to tribe up somehow. Um, but, and then the, the negative feedback I've gotten as in get, get in community together, just have community. Yeah. Yeah, Like, um, one of the, one of the constant things I hear from post-Christian people is they can't go to church. Like they'll try it. They'll try the most liberal, like Unitarian, whatever. And it's just, it's empty. It's the same way we're talking about the Bible churches for them and they miss it and they're hungry for it. And they want community and casseroles and, and they want to sing, but they just can't bring themselves to believe I, I it. I get that. And I think for so many people, you would just be better off to understand that the church can get 80% of your belief system in there and 20% of variation of what you think and what they think is better than 0% of community. We are better off in community, even if there are dis- disagreements and dis- different opinions, than to be isolated by ourselves. Yeah. Well, so I, that's what I mean. I just, you know, I, I care about them because they're people that we went to school with and, and that we've had. Anyway, so um, this season is probably going to be the last. And what I've done, because it turns out the people that are listening to it are a mixture of post-Christians, Christians who doubt, and parents and grandparents who are like, what the heck is going on? And so what I've done is at the very first episode um, is with Dr. Andrew Root, Andy, who um, has done a lot of work with the secular age because that's that's the framework that I find to be the most helpful. And um, that 800-page philosophy book, and he's explaining that book. And then in the middle of the season, I'm going to release an interview with Dr. Stephen, Dr. Dr. Stephen Boulevant, who has a wonderful book called Nonverts out. And it's called The Making of Ex-Christian America. And he's describing this phenomenon that what you leave, the faith you leave, shapes you for the rest of your life. And that it's so, for example, it is very it's a very different thing to be ex-Mormon than it is to be ex-Catholic or ex-Evangelical. And he does a ton of sociological. That's his his second doctorate is in sociology. Wonderful book. You know, sociology is not normally known for being a good read, but it is. Um, And you can hear that in the middle podcast. And then the last podcast of the season, I think, is going to be Glenn Scrivener, who wrote a book. Um, the air we breathe, um, and Luke could not get any of these authors on his podcast. So you'll have to come over to mm-hmm. um, my new network that I'm starting. And Luke is considering joining. Um, but yeah, yeah, the network is just called kidding. That Sounds. I just have a podcast. The network is called That Sounds Hillbilly <laughs> with Jonathan Stormont. And I think it's going to be wonderful. So, Jonathan, congratulations on season two. It sounds thrilling. And congratulations for being back on the podcast. I'm really glad you got this honor. Wow, and thank you. Uh, it's, it's great to be with you. Yeah, it's good to be with you too, ish. All right, then.